Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. I want to try to illumine the conference theme, Earth as Beloved Community, through three different scriptural lenses. Uh, This will hopefully allow us to glimpse some of the wisdom, both sobering and hopeful, that scripture can bring to our discipleship, our discipleship that needs to be um, pursued in light of, not in spite of, the ecological crisis under whose shadow we dwell. In this morning's study, uh, we'll look at the old story of the Exodus as it narrates a struggle between empire and nature. We'll find that it has uncomfortable resonance with the catastrophe of climate change, and we'll listen to what it tells us about God's determination to liberate the oppressed then and now. This study, quite frankly, will likely be a bit of tough slugging, I'm afraid, but biblical faith always begins with the groan, the cry. Only through the recognition of bondage do we open our hearts and lives to the challenge of redemption. So we'll begin this series of studies by acknowledging our captivity to what Rabbi Arthur Wasco calls the carbon pharaohs, by seeing how, as a result of their domination, the natural order is profoundly disturbed and by trying to understand this as an invitation to repentance, that is, to the very hard and protracted work of trying to turn history around. Tomorrow morning, uh, in turn, I want to look at God's dream of redemption, a vision of beloved community that includes the entire biosphere. In order to see this, though, we Christians need to challenge the profoundly misguided theological notion that the earth is headed for destruction in God's plan, a wrongheadedness with dire consequences. In contrast, the visions of divine redemption as restoration, as imagined by our biblical prophets, can inspire and empower us to embrace faith as the way of restorative justice concerning all things ecological and social. And Sunday morning, don't even think about leaving the conference early now, we'll see that the Bible, perhaps to our surprise, recognizes that the earth herself has a voice if we have but ears to hear it. So we'll listen as the stones cry out to the children of God to engage practices of what we call watershed discipleship a covenantal ethos of re-inhabiting that part of Earth's terrain that we too often live on, but not truly into. Now, those of you who know my work know that I'm not much on sound bites. So each of these three studies um, will demand a considerable attention, which um, I know is okay with you all because you're serious people. We'll go for uh, the better part of an hour with a little discussion breaks along the way. And I hope by now you've recognized that this neat three-part series actually attempts to re-articulate a very traditional Baptist formula, namely moving from recognition of sin to the hope of salvation to the responsibility of discipleship. Yeah, this is church, y'all. 
And heck, we might even end Sunday with an altar call. Come on. <clears throat> All right. So let us begin with a moment of meditation to set the tone for today's reflection. And I've invited three friends to read out loud in a big voice uh, this uh, quote in three parts from one of the most important books, in my opinion, in the last decade, British theologian Michael Northcott's 2013 Political Theology of Climate Change. In his introduction, Northcott talks about the framework of what he calls climate apocalyptic, or what he elsewhere calls the politics of a slow catastrophe. And so I want to invite you to close your eyes and just concentrate um, on these three uh, short paragraphs. Uh, Rodney Macias is going to start us off. as New Testament apocalyptic. First, it is an unveiling. It reveals that humanity's influence over the planet has become so large in scale that it is reaching a limit point which puts humanity's enduring tenure on Earth at risk. Second, it heralds judgment. The earth will punish the heedless affluent generations who continue to spew fossil fuels into the atmosphere regardless of the limits of the earth and their duties to future generations and species. Third, it is a call to moral and political transformation, preventing the evil of extreme climate change and preventing an age of extremes from descending into war requires radical political and personal change. Michael Northcott. I really think the first chapter of uh, Northcott's book is a must read for those of us trying to grasp eco-justice from a theological point of view. And there are lots of ways to approach this, but ultimately for folk in church, we've got to approach it um, from, the, from the depths of our tradition of faith and practice. I've chosen this quote because it also articulates three themes that will mark today's study. We're going to talk about apocalyptic in terms of both the Bible and our current climate crisis as an unveiling. And uh, Kenny and I didn't actually uh, choreograph that. It's just in the air. Uh, as an unveiling, as judgment, and as a call to transformation. So let's dive in. Well, phew, we made it through another year's Earth Day festivities last weekend, eh? And I hope all of you were involved in some way. Earth Day is certainly an opportune time for nurturing community imagination and capacity. It's an important kind of holiday to our movement. But I think all of us recognize that Earth Day has become increasingly plagued by sentimentalization, uh, not to mention colonized by corporate greenwashing. This is an example from Pacific Gas and Electric in California. Friends, let us be clear about this inconvenient truth. We are facing an ecosystem catastrophe that cannot be overstated and will not be avoided by merely modest changes in lifestyle, nor by cosmetic political reforms, nor by green sloganeering. So let us seek in every conversation about eco-justice to be vigilant about keeping things very real. 
And that is difficult, especially for us cheery church types. To help us stay clear, it's important to draw on the resources of our prophetic tradition, past and present. And there's no better resource for reality checking than our greatest Baptist hero, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Only fitting as we close out April 2018 to honor Dr. King, since at the beginning of this month, we commemorated the 50th anniversary of his murder by agents of our government. The martyrdom of Martin was certainly an apocalyptic unveiling in which the truth of American apartheid was writ large on a tumultuous season of our history. So much to be said about that, and I hope that all of you struggled some with it on April 4th and events around that commemoration. But King's message resonates particularly with that anniversary because, as most of you know, on that day the previous year, almost to the hour, King had delivered his most consequential speech in New York. To understand that address is to understand why he was killed. His Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break the Silence speech famously unveiled the intersection of racist violence at home and militaristic foreign policy abroad. In that talk, King gave a bold and prescient critique of the inevitable interrelationship of war, racism, and poverty, an analysis which tragically resonates still. This morning, I want to recontextualize King's giant triplets for our even darker historical moment. To do that, let's take Northcutt's advice and turn for a moment to the ancient biblical tradition of apocalyptic as the literature of resistance to empire. Now, friends, as you know, I think, apocalyptic symbols in the Bible are not about predicting God's cataclysmic destruction of the world, as is so often assumed in popular culture. Rather, they express the fierce imagination of those who long for the end of destructive oppression by an imperial state. That's what apocalyptic in our biblical tradition is all about. Because after all, for the poor, the end of the world is already and forever being visited upon their communities by imperial soldiers and fortune hunters and police. So apocalyptic literature arose in antiquity first during the era of Persian and then following Hellenistic domination of the Mediterranean world. These regimes brought profound changes to traditional, sustainable Middle Eastern lifeways. The elites now ruled more cruelly, extracted resources deeper, imposed slavery wider, and fought unending wars more mercilessly, all of which made life miserable for the poor and for any indigenous people caught in the imperial vice. And in turn, Rome spread imperial rule further throughout the Mediterranean world and represented the apex of ancient empire. Against this kind of overwhelming power and social organization and military might, how were those on the margins supposed to resist, much less nurture hope? The Greek word apocalypsis, as you probably know, means unmasking or tearing away the veil. 
has to do with a kind of vision that is able to see through the dominant stories of empire with its grand fictions of entitlement and sovereignty, its militaristic triumphalism, its seductive myths of grandeur, its severe orthodoxies of law and order. Apocalyptic peers through what Morpheus in the film The Matrix, intelligible to those under 55, uh, <laughs> describes to Neo as the world that has been pulled over your eyes. The propaganda of empire masks the truth, distorts what it means to be human, and hijacks history. Apocalyptic visioning, in contrast, endeavors to pierce through that veil in what one theologian calls an effort to see reality from the standpoint of redemption. Apocalyptic does this in two ways. First, by stripping away layers of denial and delusion that keep us distracted in order to expose realities of suffering and injustice. That is, to see the world as it really is from the perspective of victims of violence and those socially marginalized. And also then, the second step, to transform and transfuse our dulled and dumbed down imaginations with visions of the world as it really could be and really should be from the perspective of the creator and creator's love and justice. The possibilities of different uh, different way of being are being revealed or at least glimpsed in these visions. Now this imaginary is best represented in our New Testament in the writing of the political prisoner John of Patmos, who, like Martin King of Birmingham, was given lots of time in jail to reflect on the realities of oppression of their people which is why both prophets offer such a sharp analysis of domination and such determined visions of justice. They both exercise this apocalyptic double vision to see the world enslaved and to envision the world liberated. With me so far? The book of Revelation, um, as our um, preeminent apocalyptic text in our New Testament canon is of course highly symbolic. It's full of bizarre images and codes, but these are not unintelligible when understood in historical context. Take for example perhaps the most familiar image of John's, the force four horsemen of the apocalypse of Revelation 6. I choose these because they resonate strongly with Dr. King's analysis of the triplets of American pathology. The symbolism of John's cavalry from hell is much debated, but it's likely that the white horse means, uh, represents the conquering power of the Roman Empire that had consigned the dissident John to prison. So this first horseman represents what we might call the generative conditions for the three harbingers of death that follow closely. In other words, it stands for the culture and structures and tradition and history of empire as domination. And frankly, as we consider this symbol today, the fact that the horse is white speaks to what King named as the scourge of racism. 
as both Jan and Sheila and Malu and Tamari and others will talk about more in their respective workshops this weekend, white supremacy has been and continues to be a generating condition of modern empire. Ideologies of European racial and religious superiority fueled and legitimated the conquest and colonization of people of color across this continent and around the globe now for almost half a millennium. What follows inexorably from the project of empire are three companion horses named by John, named again by Martin. The first is the red horse of militarism. The Pax Romana and the Pax Americana both employ overt and covert military intervention to secure imperial interests. These in turn generate reactive spiraling violence imaged in John's symbology as the great sword of war, war as a way of life. For Dr. King, this was most clearly demonstrated in US policy in Indochina. Today, well, take your pick around the globe. The next to follow is a black horse and all the symbolism here is economic. John alludes to how prices on staple foodstuffs upon which the poor of the Roman Empire depended were being driven up by profiteers while the luxury goods enjoyed by the rich, oil and wine, are protected. This is the imperial world of artificial scarcity and artificial abundance. It's about the political economy of the 1%. It's about how the few rule the many. And in our time, it's impossible to separate this economic disparity from social and racial disparity, as King so aptly named. If the red horse of militarism brings swift destruction, racism and poverty bring the slower burning holocaust, one that dehumanizes before it kills. Bringing up the rear, so to speak, is the pale horse of death. This horse intensifies the scourge of the previous two, now killing the masses through sword and through socially engineered famine. And I, and I hope you're following along in these texts because this is uh, dense stuff. But it is the curious last phrase here, and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth, that piques my curiosity. Here, John envisions nature going toxic, becoming a destroyer rather than a nurturer of life. This revolt of the earth herself is something the ancients could only see through a glass darkly, but it has become the defining feature of our own moment. The interlocking ecological catastrophes of climate change resource depletion, habitat destruction, and species extinction. It is this last horseman brought on by what Dr. King called extreme materialism that is our focus this morning. Like John the Revelator, we have to keep trying to see through this veil, even when it's painful, even when it's depressing, even when it feels potentially paralyzing if we are to be bearers of good news in hard times. Now, even as we focus on the environmental crisis this weekend, and I'm so delighted that the Alliance of Baptists has embraced this difficult task collectively, 
let us keep ever in mind what both John and King understood so well. Namely, we cannot address these apocalyptic horsemen in isolation. We must see that they ride as a mob. They're deeply related to each other. You have been listening to the Bartcast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the Bartcast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening. Thank you.